Good evening. It is a rare man whose past does not return to haunt him. My past is about to catch up with me on this very show. If you are interested in watching, you will be treated to a macabre succession of murders, mysteries, and crimes of passion. I freely confess my guilt. This burden of guilt I am pleased to share with you in the program which follows immediately. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette. Yet another analysis of the Master of Suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman, and this will be, uh, ostensibly, the final time you will hear that introduction. You won't have to hear it again. You won't have to hear me say the title of a major influence in filmmaking ever again. It's done. It's, it'll be done. Uh, we are about to record the final installment of our Hitchcock Bonanza. Uh, unlike the show Bonanza, it went by too quickly. And what started as a silly whim has expanded into something I couldn't even fathom. Uh, within the series, we have been able to touch upon the facets of Hitchcock's legacy, career, and impact in the field of cinema. Having covered virtually every film in his career, and, and uh, uh, we have been able to basically kind of jump into even the ones that nobody really talks about anymore. Um, I and my many wonderful guests have been able to look upon the Master of Suspense in a variety of ways. And in the process, we've managed to have a casual discussion of Hitchcock's work um, that hopefully proved to be entertaining to listen to. Um, and I'm sure Hitch would have wanted that. Always entertain the audience. Maybe play you like a fiddle a little bit. I'm hoping we did. Uh, we also managed in our own way to provide thoughtful analysis and historical discussion to the show while maintaining a laid-back nature. However, the Shamley silhouette can never and we'll never top the level of education and talent behind our final guest. We are privileged to be joined by a podcaster who, through his tireless effort, has managed to explore the facets of Hitchcock and the Golden Age of Hollywood in a way that no one can or should try to match. In 2015, he produced, as part of his Secret History of Hollywood podcast, an 18-hour journey into Hitchcock's life that dives deeper into the history of Hitch than anyone could aspire to. Anybody. Don't even try it. It's not going to be done. And if it weren't for his work, the Shanley silhouette would not even have happened, for it was a major influence into the notion that these films of the past still had stories to tell to an eager audience I once thought did not exist. Did not know you all were out there, but now I know, and it's scary. Uh, and he has glori gloriously agreed to help discuss in Hitchcock in general and to help us sum up the master of suspense. And please welcome the host of Attaboy Clarence and the Secret History of Hollywood, Adam Roach. Hello. My goodness gracious me. I didn't even realize you were talking about me at that point. How are you? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's true. It, it, you you have an intro to your accomplishments, and and they are many. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. That's, that was extraordinarily generous of you. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a pleasure to sit down with you and to talk a little bit about a subject that I'm sure at this point you are fed up with. <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange. Have... Um, I do actually do. I, I write for a few magazines. And um, I've just been uh, part of a new Hitchcock documentary for Paramount. And uh, everyone at the moment just wants to talk about Hitchcock. It's, it's almost like, you know, I thought I was finished with it five years ago, but obviously not. It's a strange, it's a strange confluence of events. Mm, like, it really is. Out here, out here in Denver, um, what, around the time that I started the show, mm. we suddenly had a Hitchcock series at one of our local theaters. And for an entire month, they were playing Hitchcock movies. And then they also played Charade because... 
the connection there with you know how that works on a thematic level mm-hmm. um but it, it so it's and then weird window played at our alamo draft house and then psycho played at a cereal party so i got to eat cereal and watch psycho oh so like God. clearly hitchcock is not done here in this realm really really <laughs> no i don't think he ever will be and thank god for that <laughs> no and 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 we're going to talk a little bit about that and how that uh, how that influence will never go away. But uh, I wanted to t- get get into a little bit about your history with not just Hitchcock, but the Golden Age of Cinema. So uh, you started um, with The Secret History of Hollywood via Attaboy Clarence. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the origin of uh, Attaboy Clarence and Secret History of Hollywood in general and explain to the audience what it pretty much uh, is in regards to uh, how it operates as a show? Sure. I, I came across old time radio when I was about 18 years old. And um, ah. yeah, I saw these faces on the front of these cassette box sets. And I thought, wow, they look interesting. And uh, there were stories <laughs> on tape. And I've always loved stories. At- <laughs> it's going to sound like a baby, but I love stories at bedtime. <laughs> so I would buy these things and I would, you know, look forward to going to bed at like 8pm. And I would put these tapes on and listen to like Prisoner of Zender and Joan Crawford in, you know, um, three lethal words for suspense and things. And through osmosis, I think, <laughs> through obviously through sleep hypnosis of, of a kind, I kind of developed a love for this style of storytelling, the way they scored um, these uh, these radio plays, the sound effects, the you know, the way they could pack uh, uh, five character arcs plus, uh, you know, a twist into 28 minutes of, you know, uh, like, uh, these anthology series. And um, I just thought, oh, I need more of them, need more of them. So I spent from 18 to 25 kind of collecting as much old-time radio as I could. It became much easier with the internet. So um, when I got to, pardon me, uh, when I got to um, uh, my mid-20s, I, I knew who these people were. You know, I knew who John Ford was and um, uh, Catherine Hepburn. And, you know, all my friends were into, you know, John Cusack films and, uh, you know, Tarantino and stuff and I was kind of like yeah but look look at all these really cool movies that no one really talks about anymore that um you know they're just like Tarantino and uh, you you got these Jules Dassin films that that are clearly uh influencing modern cinema we should be watching this stuff as well so I began to collect uh films from the 30s and 40s and one name that kept jumping out was Hitchcock Hitchcock all the time and and when I first began collecting Hitchcock films, the, thir- the first one I bought was the Thirty Nine Steps. I think I thought he was. Mm. Um, I thought he was a very, very different director to the way you know to the one I, I learned more about. I thought he was like an adventure director, and I also um, because you see his name in the in the credits, and you see his name in articles and things. There was something about his name. I think on a sensory level, Hitchcock. I don't know what it was, but it just kind of kind of puts you on edge just i don't know why just his name put me on edge and there were always films of his on late on in the night so um i would stay up and watch psycho and things i just developed this huge love yeah. for hitchcock and when you see the breadth of his career from you know from silent to sound from tv to movies from adventure to thriller to horror to comedy you just you can't believe it's the same guy i mean I mean, who else can you really sort of say had that much of an effect on cinema in the 20th century? But anyway, so um, I developed this love for old-time radio and decided to make a podcast about, you know, I talk about a couple of these films and then I play a radio version of it. And one of my favourite series ever was um, the Sherlock Holmes series with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. I just couldn't get enough of them. I watched them on a loop, you know. 
Um, so I thought, well, I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you. Go I'm on, glad so. you brought that up because. Mm. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Are we. Do we have a uh, tech issue? Uh, no, no. Are you there? Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I'm still here. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, no, sorry. I'm I'm so sorry about that. Um, I mean, uh, full disclosure to the audience. Um, I am working off of um a uh, a uh, uh, VoIP system in order to contact our lovely guest, and uh, my technology <laughs> sucks, so I always try to make sure. No, oh, I'm, I'm glad sure you brought cool. up the the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes mm. series because. That's how I got into old time radio when I was a kid. Oh my god! And gosh. that's yeah. so when your show popped up um, with that episode in particular, when it was back when it was on the original podcast feed, mm-hmm. I, uh, I I was fascinated to learn more of the history of those films and not just the radio show, but just like the the entire facets of Rathbone and Bruce's history with that series. Mm. It was, it was eye-opening to a lot of respects, especially near the end of uh, Rathbone and Bruce's life and their careers. I know. Yeah. Well, the part of the pleasure of making that episode was the fact that I didn't know anything about them. And I think that's always been my approach. You know, I don't know everything about Hitchcock until I went and studied it for the series, you know. Um, but learning about these people gives you more of a, I think, more of a, an urge to tell their story as you're going. It's like I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't know much about Val Luton. I knew he was, you know, a horror producer, but when you dig into his story, his story's kind of like a love story, you know? Um so I yeah. think um with the Rathbone and Bruce series, which was the first episode that I really went a bit longer on, you know, so I'll review the fourteen movies and I'll talk about the radio series and I'll talk about the guys, <laughs> do a brief biography, and it turned into this two and a half hour episode that to this day yeah. I think is it- is the one that people will go, oh, I love it when you did Rathbone and Bruce because <laughs> people have such a love for those movies. It, it's and it's a it's a film series that doesn't get a lot of historical discussion mm-hmm. within context. I mean, the, the MPI has the um uh or uh, it uh, there is a there's a collection of them available on Blu-ray and nice restorations, mm-hmm. but they aren't um those films kind of fell into a weird limbo, so they don't have like a studio necessarily a major studio picking them up and like fully restoring them and mm-hmm. doing a lot of commentaries outside of this one collection that's available. I know it's a shame because really, I mean, yeah. they're great. They're a great snapshot of how you know, almost like they're almost a good snapshot of America entering the war because you know you have the first two which are you know set in Victorian times, and then when Universal took them over in I think it was like forty two, you know, you suddenly mm-hmm. have them fighting Nazis and dealing with intrigue on the continent and stuff and. You know, which it's, it's which almost, is what I've always wanted. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to? <laughs> yeah, well, it worked for Gators and um, Moffat as well, didn't it? Bring it into today's. Point. Yeah, but um, I mean, like, if 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 there's a way he could team up with the Inglorious Bastards at oh the gosh. end of this whole series, like that would have been great. But I mean, obviously, nobody could have predicted that Quentin Tarantino would do that movie. Like, they didn't even know who he was. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes and the Dripping Scalps. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh god. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. So. So within that, so you're clearly your love and your passion for old time radio and golden age Hollywood has blossomed into this whole, uh, this entire universe. And, and by the way, you should, if you're listening to this and you're uh, interested in what Adam said so far, look him up on Patreon because he provides a lot of content that's not even like the, the what you can access in the main feed is is only the tip of the iceberg uh, compared mm. to what you are able to find um, in, in terms of just golden age knowledge and uh, interactive. It's a very fun show. Attaboy Clarence is a wonderful show because you are presenting these old time radio shows to an audience that, you know, can find them through the public domain, but aren't necessarily going to 
uh, uh, actively seek them out unless they maybe, you know, have some context prior. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. That I think that was always the point of that show. Or like, it still is, you know. So, I mean, so many people have reviewed things like Gone with the Wind and Casablanca and Maltese Falcon and stuff. But I'm more interested in like the B movies and the stuff that led to radio series and you know why some of yeah. these untold stories are so fascinating and you know shocking. So, um, so yeah, that's yeah. that's what I like to do. I like to dig into the unseen stuff. So, and, yeah. and it's and it's a it's a testament to what you do. I mean, like you're. Um, uh, the the amount of uh, it, it, it's funny you bring up the B movies and whatnot because like obviously Hitchcock made his share of films that we don't discuss as a whole today compared to say a Vertigo or a Psycho or a North by Northwest, mm. but they are films that even if they are on the lower rung, you know they still have these interesting stories to tell and like and I can speak from experience that some of the B movies. Uh, that are not considered amongst the huge classics are the ones that I always end up going back to the most. Like, Me too. There's yeah. Bogart movies. There, there's Bogart movies that I love that are not discussed. Like All Through the Night is is a wonderfully hilarious yeah. film and also very terrifying at the same time. <laughs> I, li I like uh, The Enforcer. Have you seen that um, with Bogart? He plays the DA and he's trying to crack down on Murder Incorporated. That one I haven't seen. Oh God, the one one brilliant. I recently watched though, where he does play a DA, is uh, Marked Woman. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, yeah, Mark, Mark, Mark Woman. It, it made me realize that if if we had tried to make him a more straight laced hero, I don't know what that looks like down the line. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting to think like it. There's that final shot in the courthouse where the camera's back and it's is pushing in via crane onto him giving that final statement before the before the jury uh gives their verdict and it's just like this is it doesn't feel like bogart but that's one of the reasons why it's working for me is because he is actually inhabiting a character and not mm. playing off a persona person yeah 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 definitely um, yeah he did that a lot in the 30s i think before he sort of um he became known for, yeah, like you say, that persona. And then every character yeah. was kind of the same hard-bitten, hard-drinking, sort of, you know, smart right. Alec character. But before, yeah. yeah, here's looking at you, kid, yeah, and all yeah, that nonsense. That. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a situation where that studio is trying to figure out what to do with him. And mm. then, you know, you have somebody like John Huston going like, put him here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Put yeah. him over here. <laughs> do, do, I don't give a crap. You do it. Just <laughs> be <laughs> yourself. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Be yourself. Now get me another cigar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so with, um, so I always ask the guests on Shamley Silhouette in particular, um, how did you get into Hitchcock? Um, now you kind of already went into it, but what would be the first Hitchcock film that you can recall seeing and it having an impact? Uh, I bought Psycho and I bought 39 Steps on the same day because I wanted some Hitchcock mm -hmm. movies and they were like the only two in the shop, I think. So, uh, yeah, that's I, right. You did mention 39 Steps, yeah. Mm, so um, I think 39 Steps I watched first and then Psycho I watched afterwards and it was like, <laughs> what? Sure, that was the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> they're not by the same guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confuse him. There's this one really exciting film and then this one scares the pants yeah. off you. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, with 39 Steps, it's very, very... Like you watch it now and it's very creaky, you know, and, and the, you know, the mm. effects, especially with like Lucy Mannheim at the beginning where she sort of, you know, does that voiceover and you see her face sort of superimposed yeah. over the thing where he's reading the letter and looking at the guys in the street. And, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's creaky. And I, I remember watching it going, really? But, but now <laughs> I love the creakiness of it. Like the speeded yeah. up running across the, the hills in Scotland and, you know, the auto gyro in the sky and stuff. <laughs> 
Um, I love all that it, stuff. He got too glossy. It's stuff. <laughs> yeah, and it's stuff that doesn't. Um, it, it's stuff that uh, you obviously you see it down the line in North by Northwest. That different element. One of our mm. guests um, was a is a huge Cary Grant fan, but he wasn't like, and he liked Hitchcock. But when I had him on for the World War II episode, where amongst things we discussed Thirty Nine Steps and how it um, is 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 one of many films where he's giving a call to the warning of war. Mm. Um, he was just like, I'd never seen the Thirty Nine Steps before, and I was amazed how much I enjoyed it. Yeah. And he was just like, I couldn't believe I hadn't sat down and watched mm. this. <laughs> it's really it's crazy. Like it's one of those films like you get to the end of it and you think that that was one film i can't believe it. you know there's the bit where you know the the rally speech and the you know the handcuffing mm-hmm. to pamela by the fire and and the bit with lucy manheim at the beginning and the birth the fourth bridge and it's it's like one of those films it's very much like the way i feel about foreign correspondent which i think is probably my second favorite hitchcock of all time um oh i'm glad you say that oh my god i cannot get enough of that film because i it's it, one of the it, films that i you know people say oh, what's a good old film to begin with and i go right obsession from 1949 with sally gray you need to watch that and watch foreign yeah. correspondent and you won't believe how how enjoyable those films are and foreign correspondent <laughs> is one of those things that you, you get phone calls halfway through i can't believe this, i can't believe now there's an assassin taking to the top of the tower now there's a you know and he's, there's a they're signaling with um with you know windmills and was that jimmy finlayson cross, crossing the street you know and with scott folliot oh, now there's a fake kidnapping there's a plane crash <laughs> you would get to the end of it and it's almost like you need to go onto all fours and breathe deep for like 10 minutes straight just to get that, your breath that, back <laughs> that plane crash is it is incredibly nuts for its time it's like, so it is, well staged it's yeah, so well staged it's, it's incredible, and I I still love the story about like how he got that POV of the plane going down. He's just like, okay, you, I want you to recklessly dive into the ocean <laughs> and then pull up at the last minute. I don't care if it scares the living pants out of you. <laughs> um, so and it's it's one of the and also I I've I've grown to love George Sanders mm. over the course of this series. I uh, love George, him. Uh, you know, I, I mean, he's great in Rebecca, but I love him in Foreign Correspondent oh, he's more because he's. Yeah. <laughs> he's um, he's just the goofy sidekick, and I friggin' love it. Yeah. Um. So <laughs> when I so within that, um, we can dive into the. There's three things that I wanted to discuss in terms of a wrap up for this series. Um, something on the show that um, obviously within the show we've uh, had to go out of order with Hitchcock and mainly focus on different aspects of his work. Um, and not go film by film by film the way you uh, did so brilliantly on your series. Um, you. But the, uh, the the key things on it is that with Hitchcock, I feel like it's important to discuss three things to very to to very uh, to sum up his legacy on this industry. One is his origin, uh, and his origin in film is not too dissimilar to how we you know people enter a business today. You start from one part of the ladder and you work your way up that ladder mm-hmm. and you know he starts by uh moving from the henry telegraph over to islington studios after he submits uh title cards to them and he starts doing the title card design for islington studios which was a arm of famous players lasky in in london mm, yeah yeah and how incredible that you know in those days you know you think about the film industry these days you need you need you need uh, to have landed somehow before, you know, and they then they come and find mm-hmm. you. But in those days, it was as easy as just knocking on a door and walking in and saying, 
uh, I'd like a job. Can I can I make a movie? Yeah. <laughs> um, sure, come on in. <laughs> but it's all, I, I really like love him for the fact that he was very into theater and very into you know true crime and things like that, and sort of mm-hmm. thought to himself, uh, it must have been sort of pie in the sky to ever think there would be a, a, a film arm of Hollywood ever making and you know a base for itself in in London you know especially like Islington very sort of not run down but kind of east endish you know very mm-hmm. sort of you know, very common working class area um so yeah. he just knocked on the door and went in said I'm a graphic designer for a company would you be interested in me having title cards for you and you know to their credit they went oh, oh what can you do kind of thing <laughs> and uh, so he did these title cards and um and uh, yeah, impressed yeah. them so much. I mean, there's more to it than that, obviously. But but yeah, he just went in and and uh, yeah, impressed and it, them. And it works, and and it works its way up. Mm, and it he yeah. he he uh, he eventually, you know, obviously uh, Islington uh, drops down, but then he gets into Gainsborough um, mm. and working under Michael Balkan, and mm. um, that leads to the Pleasure Garden, which then leads to. Um, a film we haven't seen because it's lost, and then it yeah. leads to the launcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still looking for the Mountain Eagle. Oh, thank um, you. Contact the British Film Institute if you find it, please, please, please. They're, they've, I'm, they, they've got me on speed dial. They know. I'm, <laughs> as soon as they find it, I'm going to update the series. Adam, yeah. Adam, get over yes, here. We got one. <laughs> yeah. Oh it's my like god. Ghostbusters. They just shoot a warning. Like, yeah. They send the flare up. Yeah, like the bat yeah. signal. But the thing is, um, with the Mountain Eagle, I mean, it's, it's supposed to be a terrible film. This is the thing. It's it's supposed to be a bad yeah. film. It got terrible reviews. Hitchcock hated it. I I do get the feeling that you know, one day after we found, people will watch it and go, yeah. You know, it's such a shame. <laughs> Was that it? <laughs> kind of thing. You know, and the story sounds okay. It sounds like it just um, yeah. okay melodrama. It certainly sounds like he made more interesting films. But um, yeah, and it's it's clear that the Lodger is one he preferred more mm, in terms of this is the start that's of me. the first film. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do. I yeah. So basically, his history at, um, at Islington was that he went in. And did title cards and was so good that they said, "Can you do it full time?" So he quit Henley. You know, he was doing Henley in the day and then title cards at night. So he went along and did that full time and basically decided that this is the industry I want to work in. I, I love it so much. And every time a job came up, you know, they were walking. Around, oh, we need a you know an extra for this. We need someone to paint a backdrop. We need someone to do. It. He would always put his hand up and run over. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, and in the end, he was. It just impressed them so much that. His responsibility, oh, sorry, his responsibilities mm-hmm. began to increase, and um, yeah, I, I mean that's the way to do it, isn't it? I mean, you know, they say that hard work pays off, and it certainly was in yep. Hitchcock's case. Yeah, I think it's it, it's definitely the same when it comes to. Um, I, I mean, I went to film school, uh, you know, and it, it, you don't you don't go automatically like. I mean, you can have a focus on directing, but you start from that bottom down and you work your way up. Mm. Like, you know, I I learned how to dolly grip, and it was a fun job, and then you learn different facets of uh what what you're good at like i mean i like i like being an ad on set from time to time because i i I know how to check off those boxes Mm -hmm. and how to make sure that a set runs efficiently Mm -hmm. and i think that if as you work your way up through things you're you start to uh you start to understand how it works so that when you get your shot then you are able to apply what you've learned into that scenario and also learn what works and doesn't work for you and it clearly 
worked for Hitchcock because like even in the Pleasure Garden from that from the moment he starts directing Mm. there are moments where you can see the Hitchcock style coming through and then when you get to the lodger there the the style is very defined like okay this is what I'm going to start doing for the remainder of my periods on this earth Mm -hmm. so um and then you know he he basically with the lodger and uh, in, in you brought this up in your series, and I thought it was very fascinating because I had no, I had no idea about this within the context of Hitchcock. Is that Britain didn't really have uh, at that time a very cemented film style, and in fact, a lot of imports from the U.S. or other countries would do way better uh, mm. in Britain than a British-made film would. Absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, uh, the British films were literally at the time just filmed plays and. and- there was no imagination going into them. And I think, to be honest, there was kind of an arrogance um, among British filmmakers in that they, they thought, this is good enough, you know? Uh, if people want the spectacles, they're coming from the States. We don't have a lot of money, so we'll just do mm-hmm. things on the cheap. And I think they were just happy to go along like that. I think the creatives in the industry were, were kind of yearning to spread their wings a bit, but there just wasn't the money, there wasn't the, the resource. And also, I mean, people like C.M. Wolf, who was a d- distributor who kind of... Um, he was very set in his ways, very traditional, very, you know, ultra-conservative, would not, would try to keep that creativity down in, in the industry himself. He, you know, he thought, well, you know, if the Americans and the Europeans want to make films that are, you know, with montage and, um, you know, all this, all this newfangled film language, then that's their remit. You know, our remit is to provide something it's more upper class more upper class. so so he would actually turn films down that were more experimental um and mm. so they wouldn't get a release so people just stopped bothering i think in the end and um you know that was until until alfred hitchcock and that, when you think of hitchcock now you think of him as the entertainer and um you think of him as the personality the personality yeah you know psycho you think north by northwest the man <laughs> actually you know was far more influential and responsible for developing cinema as a whole than people give him credit for i think you know it's far too tempting to say he was um you know just a name on a tin and you know he could do certain <laughs> things well but you know, people do that you know they say oh he's the birds or he's the guy from the tv show he's the guy you know the deadpan guy he's also one of the most influential filmmakers of all time and and helped to write the language of, of cinema um, certainly for Britain. I mean, <laughs> it's yeah. terrifying to imagine what British cinema would have been like if Alfred Hitchcock had never had never happened. It would have taken them decades to uh, to get. To I mean, it'd be nothing but Monty Python. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> no, it's not. But we need yeah. some diversity in the situation. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like his talent I mean, was so was so um, uncontainable. That it just mm-hmm. you know even people like CM Wolf who had all the power were just helpless in the end they had to they had to yeah, re- that, know, and, agree to progress and it's funny you bring that up because everybody he works for in that British system <laughs> mm. ends up kind of like or for the most part ends up kind of like becoming more under him at a certain point yeah and by that by the time he leaves Britain for America he is. Well, one obviously he has established the cinematic language in Britain, and and not least of which for things that we still utilize today. Mm-hmm. But 
he's also you know like carrying on this legacy and then when he goes to america and he has this this abundance of resources he's just like look at all this shit like i yeah. can do whatever i want <laughs> you know i mean that's when it goes that, supernova and, really yeah totally. yeah it's just like if you, if you think if you look at an early hitchcock film from the british era whether it's uh it, man who knew too much 39 steps hmm. uh even sabotage which I, I mean i know he doesn't like that he killed the kid in, with the bomb but you know i, I still I like sabotage. that movie a lot yeah i love that film. it's a great it's film, a great film. Yeah. <laughs> We have a we had a joke on the on the earlier episodes of the show where he just you know just sits at home drinking at night lamenting the death of that fake ch- Kyle child so <laughs> just yeah. going like oh fuck fuck, fuck. <laughs> but yeah. so he he you can see what he's able to do with virtually nothing mm. and then he goes to America and then Rebecca is an interesting situation because that's a twofold where you have. Hitchcock's vision, and then you also have uh, a, a, a guy who who makes decisions. And, you could say <laughs> um, that because I'm not, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of David O. Selznick, although mm. he has uh, unquestionably he was a, a man who uh, produced some very influential classics in cinema, mm. uh, like King Kong. And that's yeah. it. Um, <laughs> it was his only film. Yeah, that's it. That, that's it. Intermezzo two, and it, it made a great Jack Benny parody on one of his episodes, and then that was it. Uh, but then Rebecca, and you know, we won't talk about. There's there's nothing else to talk about. Yeah, no, um, no, that was but a very short career. But but he, um, yeah, and and so, but actually, I find that foreign correspondent, you know, in talking about our passion for that, mm. that's where you get to see him really fly. Without oh even God. the interference of somebody like O'Selznick, which I mean, like, you know, Selznick, it's funny, like when you watch Rebecca, it feels like, yes, it's Selznick, but Hitchcock is clearly peering through. So it's not it's yeah. not an over dominant Selznick. It, it's very, very much um, a Selznick film through a Hitchcock filter. Like you say, it's it's uh, it's very Hitchcockized, if that's, you know, I can use mm-hmm. that phrase, you know, the whole Mrs. Danvers scenes, the, the British yeah. humor. <laughs> I mean, Selznick would not have got that. You know, it would have been yeah. it would have been a very, very different film if someone else had directed it. You can definitely see Hitchcock oh. all over it. I mean, I loved the Monte Carlo stuff at the beginning. I know everyone sort of points to that being the weak part of the film. I just think that's just amazing, especially, you know, Mrs. Van Hopper stubbing out cigarettes into the face cream. You'd never have got that stuff under Selznick, you know. She's a total dinosaur wal- walrus awful person you know um but hitchcock do you can tell he's just sort of rubbing his hands and going i love this character so much but yeah she, I, we we found out we loved her too out of any character mm. because she's like she's not she's not spe- explicitly like a, a a jerk no to i or to joe fontaine but she's but she is clearly has an opinion and she is also like the forebearer of like things to come yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We, uh, we loved we loved having fun with her. <laughs> yeah, she's great. I do love her. But then again, you know, I mean, I I love Mrs. Danvers. Even I think she's just she's just ice cold and ah uh, yeah, Judith Anderson, amazing. I just I just yeah. I, I think Rebecca is my favorite Hitchcock, only because it's that it's that um, very strange jump from um, this is like you say this is what I can do now have all this money all this resource and rebecca's one of the films that me and my wife have watched tons of times we named our son maxim because of that film and you know i love the, <laughs> I, lo- I love the novel you know it's it's just it's so yeah. good and i think hitchcock just just nailed it as soon as he yeah got there. and there if there's one thing you uh, the audience can do is if you got the criterion of rebecca to watch uh the special features on that because uh, everything that's being 
discussed here is gone into greater detail on those discs and like the Daphne du Maurier uh, documentary that they have on it is a very fascinating piece and, and getting a glimpse into the mind of the woman who wrote Rebecca or um, the the bir- the short story that became the birds or Jamaica Inn you know and I mean like Jamaica Inn is a film that we uh, you know as we discussed on this show is um it, it, there's clearly a another uh, portly gentleman interfering with the situation <laughs> I um I I got to admit I've seen it a lot I've, I think I've seen it you know I'm in double digits with Jamaica Inn but um it's one of those oh, films really? that yeah. Um, I, I went to Jamaica in like two years ago as well, just just to go and see it basically, and and see what it was. Like. It's very it's very like the film, you know. It's like on the moors and it's like low roofs and stuff. Um, and they got a Daphne du Maurier museum, and you go into that. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, oh, I've seen awesome. it. Yeah, it's cool. They've got her uh, her original typewriter, um, loads of signed books and Ooh. first editions and things. But anyway, um, so th- I've seen Jamaica in a lot more than I should have done, and I can't say that I don't <laughs> enjoy it. But to me, it's like bottom rung Hitchcock definitely it's more like yeah. mid-tier Gainsborough I would say not not it's not nowhere near a classic in his in his library <laughs> no it's 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 a it's definitely a film that like I enjoy on a different merit than yeah. necessarily the Hitchcock merit yeah you like, don't go I'm, in looking for the I'm invention wa- do you yeah <laughs> I'm looking at Charles Lawton doing what he's doing and just kind of marveling at like the, the audacity of this hammery. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it's, the phrase. It's not. It's not egregious. Say to some other people in in Golden Age Hollywood. Like I mean, some people could ham it up really big, mm. but it's just he's. You are paying attention to him, regardless of how that movie's operating. You are paying attention to him. That is very clear. Yeah, <laughs> it's even even like when he's not saying anything, he's rolling his eyes and he's side eyeing people and he's fiddling with his buttons and he's mincing around. It's like, oh for goodness' Don't butcher sake, or baker me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's uh, oh, for goodness' sake, just let someone else have the camera for <laughs> It's definitely yeah. a Charles Lawton film. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's actually it's uh we found out in the course of it that Cohen Media did uh, uh, at least stateside did uh, reissue the um their their version of Jamaica in and uh, I I managed to pick it up and it they they did clean it up for for mm-hmm. how many years I had to see that film in a bootleg version on a DVD and like it just looks fantastic by comparison to Good. how it used to look. Good. Well, I, you yeah. know, um, all these films deserve um deserve to look look their best. I think. I'm glad they are. Yeah. It, yeah. I'm glad they're picking them, a lot of these up and just really giving them that fine, uh, that fine tooth comb. Mm. Um, I mean, Kino Lobor out here just did um, blackmail and murder. And then they did a whole Hitchcock pack. And mm. um, the one they haven't done yet is young and innocent, which I'm hoping they do very oh, soon. My goodness, I love um, that, film. I, that was another film I got yeah. very early because I was going to say earlier on when I started collecting Hitchcock films, it was VHS. So I and you couldn't order them in. You just had to go in to this HMV, which is like our main music retailer in Britain. Um, we used to go into HMV, and I used to look along every single um, case, starting at A and ending in Z, and look for the Alfred Hitchcock name. Because in in those days, you know, there was no internet. Um, I didn't really have any books or anything, so I didn't even know which films mm. were his. So I go along, and all of a sudden, one day, I saw Young and Innocent, Alfred Hitchcock. I was like, oh, that's another one. Great. So I bought that. And it was the same <laughs> with things like Notorious and Spellbound and all these Selznick films and stuff I just picked up. And I had this huge Hitchcock shelf. But I remember Young and Innocent oh. being one that I really, really loved because um, yeah. I just loved the whole the whole blinking man gimmick and the tramp and everything. Uh, oh, that that blink that blinking man yeah. with the with that crane shot going. Oh my in. It god! Is fantastic, isn't it amazing? Oh. Yeah, 
It, when you hear that it took a day to film that, I'm just like, yeah, I'm sure it did. I, like, that's choreography on a scale that I can't imagine. I know. Like, that's <laughs> incredible. And to end so and close it, to his face, you know, and you just see the blinking. Uh, and, oh, and it takes your breath away. It's just that twitch. <laughs> it's like, because it, it's a, it's an elaborate shot. Yeah. And, if you, and if the audience hasn't seen this movie, watch it. Mm. It's an elaborate shot that just pushes in on that drummer. And then suddenly you just start seeing him twitch. And that's the identifier that this is the killer. It takes your breath away, and, doesn't it? You're like, oh, my God. God, it's the drummer man, and they're singing about him. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> what a twist! <laughs> uh, so Hitchcock, um, he goes to America, and you know he he uh, works his way through the forties and establishes an American, uh, or I wouldn't say it's, it's American style so much as just that he affirms what he's learned with the vast resources that America has to offer within that respect, and then we get into this golden age period of Hitchcock where. Mm seemingly hit after hit after hit with the exception of uh, a sparing few. We we hit a peak with Psycho and even the birds. Um, and then Marnie happens, which, uh, as as we discussed in a previous episode, has a lot of uh, a, a lot of different uh, baggage attached to it, uh, notwithstanding the story itself. Um, and then we have Torn Curtain, Topaz, Frenzy and Family Plot. And in the midst of all this, um uh specifically he you know he takes up Truffaut on the offer to do this interview series that becomes this very influential book to younger filmmakers these younger filmmakers learn from it and then start making films under the uh uh under the changing studio system at the time where the uh the old guard the people who created these studios who founded them from the ground up are suddenly either retiring selling their businesses or like Jack Warner getting duped out of them rightly and um uh, I mean not rightly it's it's uh, your series on Warner Brothers was uh, it was an affirmation of everything I had learned prior to that and I I love how you go through the rise and fall of Jack it is very fascinating Thank to, you. to hear your take on it Thank you. um but so basically these studios end up getting bought up by uh, different conglomerates and corporations who don't know how to make a movie. And so they are relying on the film school set to uh, make their new products. And what ends up coming out of it, uh, at least in, in this country, is the American New Wave, which uh, arguably starts with in the realm of uh, Bonnie and Clyde or Easy Rider and then ends up all the way to Raging Bull before corporatization kind of really encapsulates the industry in the 80s. And films uh filmmakers like Hitchcock are very influential to this generation and you you can't watch Taxi Driver without thinking Hitchcock to a certain extent not just because Bernard Herrmann does the score but the way it's shot and the way it's executed mm -hmm. and filmmakers like Hitchcock are still working uh the uh but I I don't know how you feel about this but I I'll 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 share my my opinion on this is that much like Orson Welles um it it it's not that they couldn't uh pursue that i feel like more often than not they they weren't always allowed to and in the case of hitchcock i feel like there's also a a, a bit of an attachment to his style that doesn't mesh with the with the things that are being groundbroken in within that period i i don't know what your thoughts are on on within that i i'm sorry just can you expand on that a bit when you um, well, more, more a good example would be Orson Welles's final film, The Other Side of the Wind, on mm -hmm. Netflix. Um, is is basically a a completion of a film that never really got completed. Mm -hmm. Um, and filmmakers like Welles, 
who wanted to play in the sandbox with the American New Wave uh, weren't always given the opportunities to. Mm-hmm. Um, Hitchcock, though, still a studio director, he was still wanted by the end. Like the the last film he would have done, The Short Night, was something they were actively working on until Hitchcock f- flat out said, "I can't do it anymore." Mm-hmm. But outside of Frenzy, the final four films uh, or the final three films, which would be Torn Curtain, Topaz, and then Family Plot. They aren't uh, they aren't within the realm of the American New Wave uh, in terms of uh, fully groundbreaking situations, and they feel very traditional. And some of the guests that one of the guests that I talked to, we felt that that was more or less kind of like a, a big crutch on Hitchcock at the time. Now I like uh, those films, but they are certainly not. Um, a De Palma film or a Scorsese film by that mm. respect. I think I think you're right. I think I think to be honest though, Hitchcock spent so much of his career at the vanguard of change when it came to, uh, to cinema. You know, he he you know fully developed European sensibilities into British and Western cinema during mm-hmm. the twenties and thirties. During the forties, he was kind of rewriting the rules of thrillers and and you know working with huge stars who loved the fact that they were able to step outside of comic roles and romance roles to 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 really develop into full-fledged actors you know and then of mm-hmm. course you know he rewrites cinema again with no budget when he makes psycho <laughs> he becomes yep. fated as an auteur by you know bazin and cahier de cinema and, and truffaut and i think you know when it comes to his later career like you say the last few films he was again thinking i, I still have energy why aren't i making why aren't i reinventing things now why am i not causing more of a stir i've done it with psycho i've done it as recently as just a couple of years ago so he goes and tries to make kaleidoscope which of course doesn't go very well but i think he could see the the permissiveness uh coming into cinema he could see you know the um, there was kind of a shock for not shock factor i think that's like the wrong phrase but uh you know the end of the the code was in sight and um Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was thinking, I can be, I can push the envelope now, and and was told by the studio that you know, sorry, you can't because you're our national treasure. You're, you're Alfred Hitchcock yeah. presents. You're the Joker, you know. And I think that really, really, <laughs> it really, really hurt him. So he he tried to, I think, uh, push the envelope more, but actually did it less. You know, things things like Topaz. Um, which is yeah. kind of impenetrable, really. It's 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 not a film you can think back and know what really the story was. You just remember scenes <laughs> from it, you know, like the bit the hotel where he's trying to get in to see the general, or you know, the the murder where the dress splays out. You know, you don't really think of yeah. the, the plot at all. It's just about something, you know. Torn Curtain, yeah. I really like. I actually really like Torn Curtain, but I don't think it's a film. It's just a film that you remember Grummet getting killed. In the you know yeah. painful ways and very slowly, and you remember oh, which is which is still a brutal it's, scene. It's great, but um, and you remember the bus ride at the end where they're trying to get away, and it's very very tense. But you don't ever think to yourself, you know, so something about a defector, you know. And I think that it it must have been quite painful for him. I think to 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 sort of be to felt like he was on the rubbish heap at that point. And I guess within within that, my when I when I look at something like yeah, when I look at something like Family Plot. You know, like, I mean, and I like the film. Uh, I mean, notwithstanding my love for Bruce Dern forever till the end of time. It's a fun film, um, yeah. You know, he, oh, it, it is, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's it's a it's a film that I think is a testament to the, the humorous side of Hitchcock that doesn't always get discussed outside of the monologues for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But mm-hmm. we talked about it with 
uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and the trouble with Harry where, you know, he has a sense of humor that he can push through. It's specifically with the trouble with Harry because that film is uh, very much what if Hitchcock made a full on comedy and that's what you get. Yeah. And Family Plot runs in that similar direction. Um, Frenzy is a situation where. Uh, you know, I think that that's, you know, if, if we were going to get any films beyond family plot and he was able to, you know, keep sneaking stuff in, I think more films like frenzy might have followed. But as you said, as, as that national treasure status had mm. kind of been placed on him, it put him in a weird box. It's very strange. He could never f- because fully escape. Yeah. yeah. Because he spent so long, you know, rewriting the rules, didn't realize that he'd actually spent four decades making himself this, uh, almost, yeah, like like national treasure. I guess is the is the best way of putting it. You know, it, yeah. it's almost like you know, I I still have so much to give, and and thank God he made a film like Frenzy late because, um, it it does show that he still had the means and you know the devilish sense of humor and he still had the um the guts really to to do a do a scene like the lovely scene, you know, the 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 horrible yeah. Barbara Lee Hunt rape scene, but. And I don't like yeah. that scene. I, I find it really repellent. But, but oh but, yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's it's awful and it's just disgusting. But you know, you kind of think at the same time, good good on you, you know, for for being that late into your career and thinking, okay, guys, getting them around and saying we're gonna we're gonna take a chance on this. You know, most people wouldn't do that. They sort of settle into you know driving Miss Daisy kind of stories. But but he didn't. He refused to. But also, I do think as well with Frenzy. If you look at Frenzy as kind of the bookend to his career and you look at The Lodger as like the, the other bookend of his career, you know, they're both yeah. both London-based, both, you know, about serial killers, both have this, you know, British sensibility, very British sense of humour. Um, it's almost like if you look at the, the language and the dialogue in Frenzy, it's like watching a 1930s film. Have you noticed that? It's like, you know, uh, no character talks over each other. You know, it's very, mm-hmm. you know, um, oh, I, there's been another necktie matter. Oh, I heard that down the road, you know. You know, and you get all these yeah, like, yeah, crowd the, characters. The exposition kind of works within that. Like, they are they are kind of using those old tr- techniques in, in a more modern fashion. Yeah. Like, that, that scene in the bar where they are going over that whole gag over, you know, how murder increases the tourism industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's just the it's just the um you can see it on the page. It's almost like you can see the page before you, you know. And the whole bit with the mm-hmm. with the um with the inspector and his wife, you know, she's cooking these dinners for him, which is to this day the funniest thing I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> she's spitting oh, out God. pig trotters and fish fish shells and things. Um, it's just it's like a nineteen thirties film. So it's almost like he's pushing the envelope at you know at the tail end of his career, but you can still see he's kind of set in his ways as well. It's a really interesting film. I'm really glad he made it. I love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And 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 as I discussed it with within the context of him, you know, in, evolving through the different phases of lure, what what would be considered lurid material mm. um which kind of goes from lodger to rope to psycho to frenzy yeah. where this it's it's this interesting approach to discussing human psychology and um, you know, and, you know, Marnie has its own, you know, version of that. But I think Frenzy is the uh, ex- is like is the natural successor to something like Psycho, where you have um, you, you have a very uh, you, have a, you, you are talking about uh, a depravity in a way that hasn't been done before. And like mm. Psycho does it in a way that 
like clinically doesn't hold up today, but it still works within the context of movie language. And as does frenzy where frenzy, uh, feels like it's like the the last possible statement he could have made within his lifetime on on that human psychology yeah. while still maintaining as you said that sense of humor that scene in the truck oh my god with the finger it's just is so hilarious and terrifying at the same time <laughs> i mean can you imagine any other filmmaker trying to pull that off he's breaking a I, corpse's I fingers trying to get a pin out you know and there's potatoes flying everywhere and you know he's sort of yeah. picking his teeth and it's it's such a great film, it, but you know, it's not a film I'd ever want my kids to see or anything. You know, it's kind of repellent, but oh no! But it's, it's, it's I took me a while to get to it. Mm. It, it took me a while. It yeah, has a I, reputation, I, I, I think. Uh, you know, and it does live up to it. I think the whole yeah. the rape scene is it's just awful. But yeah, um, it's it's terrifying, and it's it's not. It's a it's a film that I think when people watch it within the context of Hitchcock's work, it is important to understand uh, how he gets to that point. Yeah, because there's a lot of things that contribute to that. And like and it was, as we're discussing this terrifying scene and this disgusting, you know, uh, visual, you know, the, the, the thing is that Hitchcock is actively trying to push that boundary. And as you said, you know, he he was he was known for pushing like he does it with psycho like psycho is that pushing of that boundary it mm. it opens up a door for other people to be like well you know I, i'm just a you know usc student but i'll go ahead and make a movie with donald pleasance hunting down a william shatner guy mm. you know they, 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 there are things that like uh, that come off of uh psycho and in a way that like i think frenzy people draw from frenzy as well but i think like at that point in his career, he's also playing catch up in a simultaneous fashion with other people around him. Yeah, he's um, he's being passed, I think. And at this point. E- exactly, and then you know you have something like the short night that is about to be uh, that that is in the works, um, and it, it would have been very much within the frame of uh, a, a spy movie that he would have made in the past. But by the time that you know he's uh, they're close and getting ready to go. Hitchcock's under the realization that he cannot continue to make films like, especially on location or just it, the health wise, he's not up to it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he asks Hilton green to tell Lou Wasserman, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's th- this, this big end of an era. And, you know, w- by the time he passes, you know, I mean, it becomes a night and whatnot, but like his, his legacy is already cemented by these newer filmmakers who are uh, not eclipsing him, but just like they are carrying on in a way that he is not able to. And what, what, I mean, I, I think that ultimately, you know, had Hitchcock had gone on the only, the only way that I think it would have happened is much like a John Houston. He makes films, but they don't, they'll, they'll never tap into what he accomplished early on or even in the middle of the career where something just innovative popped out. But Hitchcock could surprise you with something like Frenzy, so we may never know mm. uh, what that could have been. It's so, crazy. Um, well, we definitely won't. He's dead. But <laughs> <laughs> it's um, that, that, that's the that's the reality. It must have been such a painful thing for him, you know, to to have to have come this far, and even with Frenzy, to, to you know, he he's back in Britain. He's um, he's uh, visiting the places that he used to know as a boy. He's mm-hmm. making a film that's arguably about to, you know, re-shock audiences into thinking, oh, my God, he can still pull it off, you know. Uh, and yeah. But he's finding it hard. His arthritis is, you know, literally killing him at this mm-hmm. point. And then Alma has her stroke while they're in London. So yeah. he's just reminded, I think, you know, come on, 
you need you need to think about <laughs> stopping now. This at a time where you know, like the permissiveness was you know, on uh, on the on the decrease, and he could start pushing the envelope and start making the films that he'd been trying to make the decade before. It must have been acutely yeah. painful for him at this point. Yeah, there's a, there's a story of, uh, in the making of Family Plot that I find very uh, poignant within the context of where he was at this point is uh, they had um, uh, a phone brought to the set and uh, as William Devane described it is that <laughs> there was a telephone in there. He answers the phone and he put uh, uh, a big microphone up to his pacemaker and to, to make to let the doctors know that it's still working. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's a that's a, already a situation where like okay clearly this is this is the last film. I mean obviously we know that from history, but it's just like that, that's a clue yeah. for anybody in that period that this is this is near the end, if not the end. Yeah. Um. So we uh. So within that, you know, Hitchcock passes away in 1980. Um. Alma uh joins him down uh jo- joins him not too short after and um. We're we're it, what's interesting is that the '80s and the '90s and the 2000s, uh, uh, Hitchcock's legacy starts getting further cemented through home video releases. And I mean, I know the way the way that I came into Hitchcock was primarily through those Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece collection ads that were on the front of VHSs by Universal in the late '90s, mm-hmm. and the 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 big factor of it being like i mean the the big selling point was you know a bird hitting a glass phone booth of the glass on a phone booth mm. and scaring the fuck out of tippy Hedren. <laughs> and you you have the uh you, 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 this is a filmmaker that then is his legacy is carried on much like other directors like a spielberg or uh of that are where like that name becomes synonymous with importance mm. um as the years have gone on uh, it, and we talked about this at the front of the show that the 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 resurgence of Hitchcock or the continued importance of him has never really gone away. Um, obviously, within the last couple of years, there has been uh, discussions of his methods and his uh, style of directing, and like you know, within the context of you know appropriate behavior, but and also just in terms of like well. What was old then? Like, what doesn't work from him today compared to what does work today? I mean, we have um, a great example of Hitchcock working today, and it's 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 in the places it's in the place you wouldn't expect. Uh, from my viewpoint, is um, a beautiful day in the neighborhood uh, has a scene of pure cinema in it with Tom Hanks telling uh, his the the Matthew character that he's been uh, hanging around with the entire movie to just sit down and just calmly think. And through silence, just pure and utter silence and like select sound, like very faint select sound, an entire piece of this story is told within the span of a minute with no dialogue Mm. and really following that Hitchcock sensibility, which and those are the places that are it doesn't seem the most obvious. But then you have people like the Palma, Scorsese, Tarantino, uh, even up to Jordan Peele today who are grasping onto even the bigger concepts mm. and and also those smaller concepts um if you're if you're looking from a modern viewer um what would you what do you think the biggest takeaway has been from hitchcock's legacy that has been prevalent today uh, based on all the research you've done and just you know looking at it through your lens uh i would say that um the thing you notice with Hitchcock, it, the 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 parts that stick with you are never the spoken parts. You know, it's the imagery. Mm-hmm. It's um, 
it's the fact that he took a camera and a script and told a story that could could be silent, like you say, at any point. You still understand what was happening. And I think today, mm. when you see a film, I don't think, you know, I do, people say Hitchcockian because, you know, it's a thriller or, you know, um, a, a scary kind of plot or something. Or it's directed by Brian De Palma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think Hitchcockian really is that ability to use cinema in a, in a way that isn't patronising, you know, it's to use uh, everything at your disposal to tell a story and try not to, you know, make your audience feel like a baby when you're doing it. And I think that yeah. audiences today sense it, you know, they, they go in to see a film and if they're explained, uh, if something is explained to them at length in their face, you know, and they're made to feel stupid, mm-hmm. then they sense it. They come out and they go, oh, I didn't really enjoy that. I found it really boring. I found it really boring, you know. Yeah, um, no, exactly. That, yeah, and, and you know, and then they write a 500-page essay on Reddit, yeah. and then the, the whole thing blows up in the <laughs> filmmaker's face. You know? Exactly. Or it gets critically mauled, and people sometimes can't put their finger on it. I, just, I was just bored, they say. But, you know, yeah. the, the, the films that click, the films that hit these days are ones that it wasn't necessarily Hitchcock even. You know, it was before him, it was people like Wiener and, and, and you know, um, uh, Fritz Lang and you know, people in Germany were, were kind of in, Murnau, in, yeah, inventing yeah. it. Murnau, yeah, sorry. Um, they were kind of inventing it. Hitchcock refined it for Western audiences, I think. But I think his yeah. biggest his biggest gift to the world was that, that, um, that translation of these ideas and the fact that now filmmakers use those because they sense it's the right thing to do. You know, they they sense yeah. when silence is needed and they, they do, like a good filmmaker will always um, use use imagery above, you know, explanation to tell a story. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably Hitchcock's biggest gift to the world. The help, the fact that he translated these lessons, put them into the, into the conscious and people, you know, instantly, instinctually click with them and use them to tell stories yeah. today. Yeah, and it's, what's interesting within that is how filmmakers who, like, in talking about the pure cinema of it all, which, I mean, has been a constant discussion point on this show, and, mm-hmm. and, and anytime you discuss Hitchcock, you talk about how silence and imagery works works wonders around dialogue. What I've found interesting since doing this show and then seeing the rollout of films that have come uh, down the pipeline through the award season or even just the general release schedule um, is how even where you know filmmakers like Tarantino, who are very known for their dialogue mm. and very known for that you know catchy banter, um, if you watch a Tarantino film, uh, there is a clear amount of Hitchcockian image or like a Hitchcock feel to it mm. in terms of how he utilizes imagery. That's it's not it, to yeah. the same effects that Hitchcock would do, but he is tapping into the imagery as well as his dialogue. Yeah. So it, there's a balance to it in a way that. Most filmmakers that come out of that Sundance era, you know, they they write a clever script that could easily be a play, but it doesn't always work as a film. Like I like Clerks, but it could be a play mm-hmm. and it would be just as effective. Exactly. So. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. It's almost and, like it's and, almost like it's a lesson handed down from Hitchcock mm-hmm. without him actually having to say it. It's almost like he showed yeah. people how to make films, and it it became such a part of the conscious um, among filmmakers. You know, they just. They just feel the yeah. way to make films now because of you know the the pathway he he started in the forties and fifties, and um, yeah, yeah. I think if his films hadn't been such big hits, I don't know if 
it perhaps would have taken longer for that for those lessons to permeate but um thankfully mm. they were so and they're, yeah. and they're just I mean, such good entertainment as well <laughs> and they have and and they do have that influence that does feel like a call from like from, from the past that it's it's inherent like it's it's like a it's it's like the most basic lesson mm. you learn even without going to a film That's school exactly, i mean like yeah. The only way it's more on the nose is if the ghost of Hitchcock comes up behind you and goes boo, <laughs> and then just proceeds to tell you this is how you do this. <laughs> You're supposed to be scared here, yeah. It's, it's like, <laughs> but you know, they're like each one of his uh, each one of his films is you know it's part of a bigger lesson he was teaching, mm-hmm. um, wrapped up in populist entertainment. I mean, you can't get any more sort of um, any yeah. more instructive Which, than that, can you? <laughs> no, and and within that populist entertainment value i mean we we've talked about hitchcock as like a a guy who wants to entertain the audience first and foremost and Mm. like favorite quote play play them like a fiddle Mm. you know escapist entertainment of a of a north by northwest nature a 39 steps nature even um has a big impact on what we see in the industry today i mean in terms of the biggest releases on the theatrical schedule it is escapist entertainment Mm. um as to whether or not it falls in line exactly with uh, the cinematic ideals of Hitchcock is is up for consistent debate, but uh, I mean the biggest way that I've seen it permeate through in terms of uh, breaking those grounds is through the horror genre, which obviously is a testament to Psycho and The Birds being as influential as they've been. But I think that you know we see a lot of influence on uh, from Hitchcock on things like uh, modern spy movies like Born Identity and. <sighs> Yeah. It's not the best example, but Red Sparrow uh, with Jennifer Lawrence was clearly had Hitchcock in mind when they were making it. Mm. Like it's very, very obvious and on the nose, but that's still entertaining and fair to fair to that filmmaker to give that approach. Mm. So yeah, definitely um, one of the moments. One and, of the moments I think of now when I think of Hitchcock as well in modern cinema is I, in Joker you know, when he um, when mm-hmm. he stabs his you know his co-worker to death in the oh. apartment oh god that scene oh. you know you watch it you go, oh my god there's that moment of shock and then you know the small guy goes over to the door and can't reach and it's just like you burst out laughing it's all done without oh. dialogue you know it's 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 one of it's, those it's moments in the films where you just think god hitchcock would have loved this <laughs> yeah oh he would have he would have adored it i, I ever when i first saw joker my immediate uh, callback was to something like Henry, a portrait of a serial killer. Mm. But like hearing that, no, that's that's absolutely true. Like that mm. scene plays out, and it is played out in a very quick edit, mm. uh, not unlike a montage that he would have done. And just the humor that lies within that terror is very much him. Is a <laughs> because you don't know up. For, for one moment if he's going to kill him too. So you're on edge. You're like, you're... oh, I thought he was going to kill him. Yeah, <laughs> you're sitting on one. I was just like, lost mine. <laughs> <laughs> you just. You're as tense as a nut, and then all of a sudden you burst yeah. into laughter. That's pure Hitchcock. <laughs> it's, 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 and it's mainly the fear on his friend's face where you're just like, man, like, I just. And, and Phillips, it, it, what's interesting is that, like, he, you know, he's playing it in a weird humor that, like, he's always done, and this was just, like, the dramatic, logical step to take it in. Because, mm-hmm. like, if you look at something like a hangover, he's clearly creating a cinematic approach to comedy, and in this, he applies a Hitchcockian <laughs> method to this bizarre scene that mm. just works so wonderfully within that film. Mm. Um, and then, like, with within all of that, Hitchcock, you know, his directing style and the way, like, I, I would say that, like, amongst the things that didn't 
fully translate or like, I mean, I guess it's a case by case basis, but you know, the one thing that has been discussed um, at length on Hitchcock is, you know, his feelings towards method actors and oh, well, actors in general, mm. but um, uh, you know, but the working with people like Montgomery Clift or even Paul Newman, where mm. you know he's he's trying to tell them from from what he's learned and what has worked for him that like my frame is your guideline. You step out of that frame, then I'm not getting you, and that's a problem. So whatever you do in that frame is up to you. Mm. Um, whereas I feel like you know, the camera has been lifted off the tripod, so to speak, and is allowed to move more freely. So in a, in a sense, I feel like not only have acting methods uh, uh, changed, but also the way we carry on those things. So it's almost like, you know, keeping that, keeping something within the frame, uh, as long as you're, if you're going to move it around like that, um, you know, he, it's, it's clear that like people saw something like that and like, okay, I like this part of it, but let me apply my own thing to it. So it's almost like, a lot of his ideas have evolved into stuff that we see more often than not today. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like, I, I mean, Carpenter, John Carpenter obviously is influenced heavily by Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and John Ford. And I think Halloween is a great example of how he, it's not even, he's not even taking off of psycho per se. He's taking off of like different things that Hitchcock liked to mm. do um, and just applying them to this small you know, siege on a small suburban neighborhood in, uh, in, in Illinois slash Beverly or slash California. So, you know, like, um, so it's, it's very clear that people look at what he does and then adapt it. And like, as, 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 uh, as recently as us by Jordan Peele, where you have, uh, a, a horror film set in the Bay area and <laughs> playing off of that imagery, like locations are a big thing. Like people like establishing a location as a character in and of itself, which Hitchcock clearly loved to do with things like vertigo, um, where the city itself becomes a bit of a character. Mm. Um, and so that within all that, the legacy of Hitchcock, uh, it's 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 a ghost that keeps haunting this industry in the best of possible ways um and i don't think we're ever going to be done with him as you said like i mean if there's one thing i've learned from your show is is that these these lessons that the the beginnings of this industry have to teach uh have no reason to ever go away because they'll always be eternally relevant to the discussion <laughs> yeah i mean uh, yeah well thank you first of all um but yeah, I, I don't think there's any reason they should go away either. You know, no. I, and then I, I don't think you should ever sort of, you know, um, put a stamp on the past and mail it away. You know, it's it's always going to be a part of, of film history, and it's great that people are still acknowledging it, and um, especially for people like Hitchcock. I mean, there's never going to be a time when he's not relevant, um, mm. which is kind of a gift for the world because it just means more and more people are going to watch his films eventually. Right, and then they'll get they'll get as excited as we get over foreign correspondent. Mm. Be like George Sanders <laughs> should have been the best friend in most more movies, not just the villain. Yeah, <laughs> I love the fact that you know I mean, people can watch like foreign correspondent and, and um, you know even things like Notorious and Spellbound and um, mm. all these films just from early forties stuff and and go God that felt modern. There's a reason for that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's not that they feel modern; it's that. Modern films feel like Hitchcock films, so and there's you it, know, they always. Will. I'll tell you the. I don't. I, 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 let me ask you this. This is a. This is a question I uh, didn't uh, think to ask when I was preparing everything. But 
when you were doing the Hitchcock series, did you uh, have a chance to see Hitchcock movies in a theater, like in, like pe- like different screenings going on where you got to see audience reaction to them in a modern context? No, unfortunately not. There's not mm-hmm. really that much outside of London in Britain. Um, for the for the kind of okay. for the classic film lover, so I mean you can journey into the, into London and see those kinds of films, but they're few and far between. But I am lucky enough to own a projector, so I do I do get <laughs> I do get to watch them on the big screen. In fact, I got, I got a PlayStation VR thing uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, it has like a cinema mode. So you you put it on and you put a film on and it feels like you're in a cinema and you can actually look around at this huge huge screen in front of you. And the first film I you know, got to try it out with was the Thirty Nine Steps. It's like <laughs> it's such a great film to watch on the big screen. So, but yeah. So, in answer, I haven't done it with an audience, but I've done it many times alone. <laughs> now, now that just makes me think of Hitchcock doing VR. Now. That would have been <laughs> my god. Oh my god, we could put them right in the Bates Motel, Alma, Alma. We could put them right there. I'm behind it's, it's you. All there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, What's, what I found interesting since I started the show was, I mean, like, and we talked about how, how convenient it was that suddenly Hitchcock was playing all over the place. Like, mm-hmm. one of the screenings I got to go to was Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is as, uh, which is as obscure for Hitchcock as you can get. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at that film, you're just, uh, um, like a poster for it, unless you're reading the name of Alfred Hitchcock, you're just like, oh, it's a, it's a Carol Lombard yeah, school comedy. Yeah. Okay. It's, what do you think of that film? Nothing to do with the man. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. No, it's, and, and I love that film. I think it's a, do you? Um, oh, okay. I, I get really, yeah, I get really annoyed by it. <laughs> just... uh, so, so here's my, here's always been my eternal thing on it. It is not like, it is certainly not the best screwball comedy in the world. Mm. However, Anytime I can watch Carol Lombard do something, I am entranced. Oh, me too. It is. I yeah. I think it's a very big attestment to uh, her ability as an actress. Um, I mean, and I've been uh, uh, upfront on the podcast. You know, like I mean, my one of my favorite films of all time is her final film, and I mean, there's a multiple reasons for that. One of them being a suave debonair comedian, mm. but you know, <laughs> like, but but something like Mr. and Mrs. Smith. What is, what I find interesting is that like. I don't enjoy it on the same level as say I do a My Man Godfrey or The Awful Truth. Mm. What I what I find fascinating on it is just like wow, this is this is uh, decent work from a guy who wrote Princess O'Rourke <laughs> and has the screwball queen herself and is directed by somebody who I'm not expecting to do this. So I, I'm, there's a certain level of me where I'm just like, man, I really appreciate what's going on here. Like, it, 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 like is it is it more uh, is it as exciting as say other screwball comedies? No, but I'm getting a kick out of it. And when I saw it with an audience, they were roaring. Oh, really? I mean, okay, like, even in places that I wasn't, and I'd seen the film mm. multiple times, and I was like, you know, okay, I know the beats here. They're roaring with laughter, and I think a lot of them didn't even know that this existed for Hitchcock. Okay, that's a, um, that's interesting. And I, I get more annoyed by the yeah. plot. I think I think it's very well directed. Like <laughs> opening scene, you know, where they've had the argument and they're sort of like you know yeah. avoiding each other, and he hides behind the sofa, and, and then you see their feet playing under the table. I mean, I think it's a very well directed mm-hmm. film. I just um, I think it's the plot I have problems with. It's just like you know, <laughs> about fifteen minutes into there, you know separation i just think oh just get back together would you for goodness sakes you know um yeah they, they draw that out that that's that's a bomb under the table that i yeah. wish would just go <laughs> off immediately <laughs> it's like, oh, you're so clear. all you've got to do is like explain something to each other and you'll be back together and, and then the, the best friend yeah. comes into it so. so i get quite annoyed by it but then i do have fond memories of it i do think it's very well directed and and like you say anything yeah. with carol lombard is 
is is you know a yeah. treasure to to be um, treasured. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, and and her relationship with Hitchcock, mm. and as you discussed in the series, you know, it it it, it adds a double impact to that film. Um, in, in its existence, not necessarily for the for the story itself, as, as we were just talking about, but like just the fact that like this is the only time she ever got to work with Hitchcock, mm. and imagining how that could have, if she had not passed, how that might have, like how she might have done more with oh him. Oh my god, that um, amazing! Which I would have been fascinated to see her in, even if it was in a thriller, because mm. Lombard gets the comedy label, but she she was an actress through and through like she could do anything mm. uh, i i find and, it like quite fascinating to imagine her in any kind of 50s cinema or late 40s cinema you know uh, what would she have looked like as a an older woman and you know what uh, kind of what kind of roles would you, you know obviously she'd still be beautiful but i just i really wish she got a chance to see her uh you know in the in the you know the the second or third part of her life you know i think she would have been it, Equally I think important. hands down she would have been a part of the cast of It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World because they found a way to get everybody in there. But... Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, um, but like, but I'll tell you, like, but the in terms of like the reception of an audience to Hitchcock uh, films, like the the big ones, like we saw North by Northwest in a theater as um uh, on the regular show I do, um, and uh, you know my my friend being the biggest Cary Grant fan that that can possibly exist out here in the, the states. Um, he like he was enamored and transpired. He took he brought his wife along, and the the audience's just reaction to things like it wasn't just laughter in the funny moments. It was gasps. It was genuine surprise because not everybody had seen it. And what was what was fascinating to just watch like it's almost like I've seen that film so many times I can shut my eyes and just listen to how everybody else is responding, and that is the more interesting element mm -hmm. of this whole screening. Okay. Um, Rear Window had this very same effect. Uh, everybody was very digging into Rear Window. Um, so uh, I think before we wrap up, you know, uh, I have loved talking with you about this, <laughs> and I know that you have you. obviously been – <laughs> been able to discuss Hitchcock in a way that I, I mean, like that the most people don't get to outside of Donald Spoto or Stephen <laughs> Rebella. So, um, what, what would you say, uh, even removed from the series that you did itself, you know, how do you see Hitchcock, uh, after all this is done after all, after having that much time with the master of suspense himself and then having it removed with, uh, time with a, v a person like Val Luton or even a Jack Warner. Like, how does it like how does it stand out to you? Well, you know, I lived with uh, Hitchcock for I think it was eighteen months. The whole series took me, and I remember getting to the end of writing it and uh, releasing it, and I, I actually felt very, very bereft. You know, he. I think the more you look into him as a person, I'm not talking about his film career now, but um, as a person, I just found him very, very human. And almost, you know, someone I could relate to. Part of my reason for making that series was that I'm so tired of him being presented as, you know, a monster or, a, you know, a film director mm -hmm. even, you know, or, or just as, you know, the guy from the beginning of Alfred Hitchcock Presents or a buffoon or someone who put his name to books or, you know, or something like that. I just got really tired of the fact that people are so easily pigeonholed these days. So when I got to the end of that mm -hmm. series, I kind of think that if my, if I had any kind of success with that, it was that, you know, I kind of portrayed him more as a human being that, you know, and there, there was mm -hmm. no, there's no one thing or the other, you know, he was lots of things. He was, 
He was a show-off. Right. He was... Um, he definitely had <laughs> prankster. yeah exactly he was a prankster he was um an utter genius he had issues when mm-hmm. it came to women you know he was a loving father he adored his wife he knew when to quit there are so many things when it comes to alfred hitchcock yeah. and i think when i got to the end of his life story and i looked at the whole thing and i you know began with a small boy above a green grocery stop and um ended with a man who completely changed cultural entertainment in the 20th century and will be forever remembered. It just demonstrated to me that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, you can have an effect on the world. And um, Hitchcock, for me, was like, it was like, when I said goodbye to him, it was like, I've said goodbye to a family member. And I do think of him now as that. I don't think of him as, you know, uh, this, you know... (laughs) A mysterious figure from the past. I think of him as someone I got to know really, really well. So uh, I do yeah. miss him. I miss all my subjects. But, I think. <laughs> well, you, well, thankfully you've. Uh, I mean, obviously you discussed that you uh, you've been able to talk about this subject even more with the do- with the documentary, mm. but also the, uh, the just the amount of uh, additional stuff that you do within um, uh, Attaboy Clarence and uh, Secret History of Hollywood on, on the Patreon, like film mm. clubs. You know, there's always that opportunity to go back to this subject. Mm. Um, yeah, that's great. And I, I'll say that, um, you know, this is a figure that I grew up with in the oddest of ways. Uh, you know, I didn't like start I didn't start with a John Carpenter or a uh, Toby Hooper like most people did. I started the way those guys ended up starting with films like that and then grew into those later things. So with Hitchcock, you know, there's obviously been discussions of like, as you said, the monster element, but also, you know, the the character from the TV show. Mm-hmm. And what I've appreciated about sitting down with him as a subject for is is that there's you can address those things as you did as well in the uh, in the series that you did, but not lose a respect for the man mm. and also you know find an adoration towards it. Like I, I'll tell you my favorite thing that I've been able to do over the co- course of nearly a year is to you know put curse words into Hitchcock's mouth and make him a person <laughs> you know like when every time i do that imitation it's the worst imitation of Hitchcock imaginable but i know who you yeah, are yeah. you know we've had we've had so much fun with that and i like doing it with jimmy stewart too mm. like <laughs> i haven't made an appearance yet I, I, i'm gonna come on one last time <laughs> to talk to uh, hi adam hi i'm jimmy <laughs> hi Jack. Uh, uh, oh my god i won't even but, so so it's 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 one of those it's one of those things that I think has been fascinating throughout the whole thing is is that you know and especially from modern context you know like you know I've I've certainly had a reckoning of my own like if, as you've listened to the series I've had to come to terms with different facets of Hitchcock while still maintaining the ability to continue on to the show and still you know by the time this is over I'm still going to pop in Psycho every year I'm still mm. going to be watching stuff like North by Northwest in a rear window um you know and uh, it's amazing how that ghost that we discussed uh, not too far back in the conversation has lingered all these years, mm. you know, amidst anything that the industry has been changing and evolving into and amidst anything that has been, you know, discussed in terms of his legacy and how that uh, is both relevant and irrelevant or whatever the case may be for anybody that he's still there. Mm. The bottom line is he's still there, regardless of where the argument lies. And I, I'm eternally fascinated by that. And like, I've looked at Hitchcock from this perspective, just like, it's, it's almost like being able to uh, be put in the position of a true foe where you are basically learning at his feet. I'm not in front of him, but I've got all this information coming at me. He feels like a real person 
in a way that he hadn't before, mm. which is eternally fascinating in that respect. Mm. Because like, and I, as you just said that you went through, I went through the same thing mm. where it's not, it's 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 not just this uh, uh, industrious figure that like we put on a statue or you know on a on a mural like it, it's a it's a human being that lived and breathed mm, and yeah and the same goes for Alma Revel yeah oh my um, God. yeah she's incredible. Alma Revel the I mean talk about a woman who if if there's any precedent for things like the Be Natural the Alice Guy Blachet documentary about how we don't talk enough about you know the legacy of women filmmakers and whatnot but alma revel is one who you know the the contribution that she made has been very very openly pointed out by hitchcock himself mm. like he what i love about hitchcock is that he never discounted his wife's and never and he, he never, constantly tried to remind the world of just how much of an impact she had through his films and <laughs> and you know he might have been the name <laughs> as, yeah. as a director but she was equally as responsible for everything he made Definitely. And it's one of those reasons why, like, you know, uh, I when I first saw the Hitchcock uh, movie that uh, Sasha Javarsi did, I, I was a fan of it. And I my opinions on it have, like, uh, evolved uh, differently. But one thing remains the same is, is that that's a movie that gives Alma Revel a voice yeah. that she never had before. Yeah, it gives her props. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We yeah. really need to give her more credit, definitely. That's yeah. one of the points um, I, I made a lot during the documentary we just made. It was just that, you know... Hitchcock is is so important, definitely. But he really was a team. It wasn't. It wasn't. He didn't work alone. And when he knew that Alma couldn't work either, that's when he stopped too. So, which tell you everything, really. Yeah, and it's it's. I think that that's it. That's a love story within that. Mm. You know, like I mean, and you know, like I I think that when th within her legacy, what's interesting is that we do have a lot more information on her than you than you'd think, mm. um, and it's something that I think deserves uh, a, a wider discussion, much much like you have been able to provide through your show. Because I think one of the beauties of your show is not just the fact that you're talking about Hitchcock, but you talk about a variety of people that have an involvement in his career that. Uh, have a have sometimes even bigger parts to play than Hitchcock in certain situations, and Alma is certainly one of them. Yeah, hundred um, yeah, percent. I I do feel that when I by the time I was done with your series, uh, the the amount of uh, patience and devotion that Alma had while having the consistent dedication to her craft is is something that uh, is is a is a wonderful lesson to how. We don't look deep enough into figures in history and how that, you know, needs to shift. Thank um, you. It's, <laughs> I it's, couldn't think it's of a better compliment. Thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, well, that's, you know, I, 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 I mean what I say on this when I say that, the, like, you know, one of the things that you've been able to do with this is to help provide a, uh, a, a, a gateway for people in a way that I think that, like, not even this show can do. Like, when, when it's all said and done, we're kind of doing a bit of a riff riff on things. Uh, while still, you know, providing those facts, but like you've done the the work of creating, like it's it's an audio film to a certain respect, where you are crafting stories. Mm. You are actively creating a world for people to fill in their heads, not unlike old time radio. That's very kind. You know, that's extraordinarily it, kind. It, where, whereas I am trying to apparently be Mark Maron, <laughs> and I know. <laughs> and, and who are your guys, Adam? Who are your guys? But. You know, uh, thank you very much, Adam, for capping off this 
silly experiment that's going to continue into into a different form or fashion. Uh, but uh, really quickly, I want to uh, let you plug anything you've got coming up. And I know you've got a big thing coming up, or is it should be already released by the time that this has come out. But you have another secret history of Hollywood subject. Yeah, I've made eight series now. I think Hitchcock was number four. I've also done Audrey Hepburn, uh, the Warner Brothers. I've just finished Val Luton. That was a big one. That took two and a half years to do that one. I've done Universal <laughs> Horror, and I've done Basil Rathbone, and I've done Pre-Code Cinema, and I've done Hollywood Communism. And the next one is Cary Grant, which ties in very nicely ah. to the conversation we've just had. Uh, thank you. Oh, it's turning into a, my- a bit of a behemoth, I have to say. It's very, 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 very long. And I actually, last month, decided upon an idea that I should really have injected from the beginning. So I've just started to rewrite the entire thing again. But it's working wow. out really well. That, I'm very pleased. Our first guest, Ryan, is going to go nuts. Over <laughs> He's finally going to listen to the show. Like, oh, wow, thank you. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, anytime I... Anytime I'm like, anytime I'm just, the, they, like, my friends, like, you know, like the fact that I like Golden Age Holiday, I'm just like, go listen to this. Like, go listen to me. Like, <laughs> Thank you. And this one, I think, is going to be a great way for him to dive, because he likes, um, he's, he, one of the things he's loved, he went through all of Grant's films and did his own ranking. Right. And, okay. uh, well, did he come out with a watching his, number one? I'm intrigued. Uh, Awful Truth. Awful I, Truth. I think that wow, that one okay. stuck with, yeah, it stuck with him as his favorite, and it's just really came down to for him was the um the formation of the grant persona mm. and how that um you know is fully formed within that and also uh the the production of that film i think utterly fascinated him and um and he loves irene dunn mm. so there was a lot of uh factors within that um but like amongst the ones we've actively talked about you know like we went to go see the bishop's wife in a theater at christmas time and we just had a blast oh well we watched that for film club i think at christmas just gone me and the patrons and uh surprisingly you know one of those films i've seen it you know dozens of times and it still made everyone laugh everyone was like you know so into it and bemoaning the fact that it was you know over when it was finished it's a yeah, great movie. it's well, it's it's, it's amazing because you get to watch Cary Grant essentially be an X Man. I know he's an angel, <laughs> but he's really an X Man. <laughs> that is the best description ever. <laughs> it's, it's stopping short of Patrick Stewart coming in and going like, "Would you like to join my school?" Like, there's, <laughs> he's just helping out these people with his awesome angel powers. powers. This is wine um, with his sherry and, like, powers. And I'll, <laughs> refilling glasses yeah <laughs> this is why we do it is so we can just be like you know what happens if you know hitchcock you know decides to make a jason Voorhees movie how does that happen? <laughs> um, well, which i would have loved i'm not gonna lie <laughs> well i hope your friend likes the Cary grant series uh, from actually yeah. from um the first lot uh, the first few series i did were very documentary style you know they were very um it was just trivia mm-hmm. really life stories kind of thing yeah um but with hitchcock i think i took a bit more of a biopic kind of turn you know sort of you know by the end of it you know he was it was very much you know a life drama and then the the one i did yeah. after that was warner brothers and that was basically just like game of thrones in hollywood you know it's very you know <laughs> you had dialogue between characters and yeah. the last series i did which was shadows and the val luton story that was you know, I mean, I, I I kind of don't exist in that. It was more the characters telling the story themselves. Yeah. I think with this one, with Cary Grant, I've tried to, well, not tried to, I have. <laughs> the, the style has changed again, I think, for the better, because there's, there's something that happens. I can't go into it too much, but 
when you no, when you when you don't, hear don't. it it's it, it's very it, it's very big bold storytelling i'm i'm very very proud of the way it's going and very very proud of the way it's told which is the only hint i can really give you but it's it's definitely yeah. no, different it, I, and I, it's, it's, I, I insist that you do not tell your friends <laughs> how the Cary Grant series ends <laughs> that was the worst Cary Grant I've ever heard <laughs> no, no that was both, I know I know was supposed to be Hitch giving that warning <laughs> I know I'm joking <laughs> okay yeah so psych no that I'll, I'll tell you like I mean that goes back to the ultimate like thing about that like that showmanship like I mean you know we talk about like digging deeper when it's all said and done though the audacity to tell people don't tell the ending of my movie like yeah. you, you created spoiler alerts <laughs> you <laughs> did god the guy <laughs> had so much reach didn't he <laughs> yeah this the, the amount that he did um mm. and also uh i would encourage people who have heard what this grant series is uh, gonna be and getting teased a little bit by it you know you you really owe it to yourself to go to adam's patreon and sign up for it because you get access to everything and the amount of content he puts out and the depth and detail he goes into is staggering and incredible. And there is the film club where you can participate in watching the movies that are discussed Thank you, and yeah. get and get insight from not just him, but other people who are within that Patreon sphere. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, and, it's a really good fun night every month. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. So <laughs> that's pretty much it. This is the end of Hitchcock at this point. Well, now, I still have a couple of episodes to record because I'm pre-recording. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm raising a glass to you now, and congratulations oh, on finishing your series. Thank you very much. I know sir. how it feels then, when you get to the end of a big project like this. and you just, it, you it's, just It's emotional, and um, yeah. yeah, you must feel very, very proud of yourself. And I'm so glad to have been I, here I, at the end. Thank you. I'll tell you the uh, the big thing that I'm taking away from this is um, one obviously talking to you, but two <laughs> is that you know when it's all said and done, these are figures that I uh, you know I-, I thought never had a-, a voice to say anything anymore, and that I thought I was like the only person in this sphere who was into this stuff. And then as you grow older and you realize that the the world is much bigger and brighter than you realize. Mm-hmm there are other people who have these same interests and to discuss it with them. Like, I mean, it's not Hitchcock, but like, I didn't think there were other Jack Benny fans in the world. And then all of a sudden I find that there are like more than I would care to know. So like, you know, um, but yeah, this, this series has been a fascinating dissection into a, uh, into a, a, a childhood icon of, you know, what it means to be afraid, you know, the universal monsters, you know, first ones to scare me. And then, when I saw the shower scene in Psycho, I was scared shitless. Mm. So, and I saw that when I was ten. So, like, <laughs> clearly, you know, like there, there are still, there are still, uh, still, still uh, reactions to be gotten mm. from these stories. Um, to thank you again, Adam, no for coming on board to wrap this up. This is going to be the final episode of the Shamley Silhouette. If you're looking for the back episodes of the Shamley Silhouette, uh, look at realnerdspodcast.com. Um, on the next series, I don't know yet. I still have to make decisions. Tough life decisions. Um, but this has been the Shamley Silhouette. Until next time when we shall return with another story, good night. <laughs>